Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, corporate news media tend to take the State of the Union address as an opportunity to talk about messaging and whether the president's message is landing well with first of all, other legislators, and then somewhere in there, the U.S. public. A better mediaverse would start with the impact of official actions, not just on the people who donate or even the people who vote, but on everyone whose lives are shaped by government policy. So on just a couple of points raised, to the extent that most of us are hearing about fentanyl, it's likely to be news stories saying that just touching the drug is enough to lay you out. Or more recently, stories about Mexico and China and why they want to poison us. What elite news media and politicians aren't having yet is a conversation about drug use and harm and whether saying really loudly how far under the prison you'd like to put dealers is really an admission of failure to address a public health issue as a public health issue and to put human beings over table-thumping rhetoric that goes nowhere. We'll hear from Maritza Perez-Medina. She's the director of the Office of Federal Affairs at the Drug Policy Alliance about the current state of affairs around fentanyl. Also on the show, the Washington Post editorial board says a discussion on Social Security needs to happen sometime and sooner rather than later. That's because these entitlements, they say, already account for a third of federal spending and are on unsustainable trajectories. When is the last time you heard from media that the Defense Department's unending trillions are unsustainable? Why is it just about whether your grandfather who paid in his entire life should maybe get ready to get nothing at all? Elite media seem to be ever stumped about why they can't sell their and Republicans' image of Social Security as a weird communist mistake to a public that just doesn't see it that way. So once more with feeling, we will revisit the reality versus the fantasy of Social Security with some pieces of an ever-relevant 2018 conversation that we had with Nancy Altman, president of Social Security Works. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. Gary Camilla's red-baiting New York Times review of Malcolm Harris's book Palo Alto is clear on its concept. Quote, Karl Marx's long shadow darkens every page. Close quote. Okay. But in service of what we are evidently supposed to understand as a non-ideological corrective, Camilla makes a frankly false assertion about the persecution of Japanese people that amounts to denial of one of the most shameful chapters in U.S. history. The Times should issue an immediate correction and apology. Camilla complains that Malcolm Harris cites the case of sculptor Ruth Asawa, who was interned along with her family and then formally excluded from California. 
Kamiya says that Harris's implication is that all artists of Japanese heritage were banned from the state, but, quote, this is not true, close quote, except that it is true that Japanese nationals and Japanese American citizens were banned from California beginning in March 1942. As personal justice denied, reported the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians explained, under the U.S. Army's interpretation of President Franklin Roosevelt's Executive Order 9066, quote, all American citizens of Japanese descent were prohibited from living, working, or traveling on the west coast of the United States. The same prohibition applied to the generation of Japanese immigrants who, pursuant to federal law and despite long residence in the United States, were not permitted to become American citizens, close quote. Japanese residents of some lightly populated areas of eastern California were not initially subjected to the ban, but the exclusion was extended to the entire state in June of 1942. While the initial plan was to allow people ethnically cleansed from the West Coast to relocate to other states, that was deemed impractical. And concentration camps, yes, were set up to confine them. As the commission report put it, quote, the evacuees were to be held in camps behind barbed wire and released only with government approval, close quote. So what is offered in support of the assertion that Harris's writing that artists of Japanese heritage were banned from the state is not true? Well, this is Kamiya's entire argument. Quote, to take just one example, the artist Chiara Obata, who was on indefinite leave from his professorship at Berkeley while interned at Topaz, was reinstated by the University of California president Robert Spruill in January 1945, close quote. So the fact that a person released from a detention camp after the War Department rescinded the ban on Japanese residents in California was allowed to get his job back means that that ban wasn't real and to talk about it is untrue. Kamiya treats the fact that Japanese exclusion didn't continue forever as a damning indictment. And he thinks we'll all nod along with the idea that, quote, selection bias, clearly driven by Harris's conviction that positive stories are simply window dressing, concealing capitalism's dark reality, severely damages, close quote, the book's credibility. If the New York Times wants to bring forward feel-good stories about U.S. treatment of official enemies in wartime, well, they're welcome to. They just don't get to use falsehoods to do it. The paper should correct this error. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. When it comes to drugs, that is to say, when it comes to drugs whose use by some people in some contexts is officially deemed illicit, to suggest any other approach than criminalization is to be told you aren't taking the issue seriously, that any response not involving jail, prison, loss of livelihood, family separation is widely deemed essentially a non-response is indication of an impoverished state of conversation. But is that changing? Some pushback to the White House policy addressing fentanyl suggests that there is space 
for a new way to talk about drugs and harm and ways forward. Maritza Perez-Medina is the director of the Office of Federal Affairs at the Drug Policy Alliance. They're online at drugpolicy.org. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Maritza Perez-Medina. Thank you so much. Well, what, first of all, does current policy with regard to fentanyl look like? It seems like states, and I know you look at federal affairs, it seems like states are rushing to do something, but the things that they're doing are not necessarily well-grounded or based in understanding of what we know works. Uh, How would you describe kind of the current state of play with regard to policy here? Well, unfortunately, I think at the moment we're experiencing a lot of media sensationalism, but also sensationalism coming from lawmakers around fentanyl, rather than thinking about policy solutions that are based on public health. Because when we're talking about overdose deaths and overdose deaths related to illicit fentanyl, we're really talking about a public health issue that requires a public health response. We know from decades of research that the criminal legal system and a punitive enforcement strategy does not help people who use drugs, does not save lives, and certainly does not reduce the drug supply. If anything, it can lead to a more dangerous drug supply. Well, that seems important to go on because I think to the extent that folks who aren't experiencing it personally in their lives, what they get from news media is, first of all, that weird round of coverage of police officers apparently being laid out on the street from just touching fentanyl, which was debunked or at least explored subsequently by media, but it's really kind of sensationalist scare tactics, or it's genuinely hard stories about people who have lost loved ones to overdose, but it's not necessarily a a public health conversation or even a sort of research-based policy conversation. It's very much scare tactics and heartstrings in a way that doesn't necessarily tell us what to do about it. Yeah, and I think those narratives are harmful. For one, you know, the the myths that we're seeing around fentanyl are not helpful because it's essentially just creating more stigma around people who use drugs. And we know that that stigma essentially is going to harm people, especially people who may have used fentanyl, because they're going to be reluctant to want to call for help if, if they need it. Folks are going to be reluctant to want to call for help if they witness an overdose because of potential law enforcement involvement. Or people might even think that, you know, if they help someone who's overdosing, they themselves will be exposed to fentanyl, which is not true. Rather than perpetuating these myths, we should really be having a conversation that's grounded in public health education and knowledge. The fact of the matter is fentanyl is in the illicit street supply. We need to make sure that people who use drugs are armed with information that will keep them safe and that will keep them alive. So people should have access to things like drug tracking tools so they can check their drugs for fentanyl. They should have access to harm reduction tools like clean needles, things like naloxone that can help reverse the effects of an overdose. These are real tools that we know save lives and keep people healthy. Unfortunately, a lot of the myths that we're seeing perpetuated in the media and even by lawmakers are really not helpful to keeping people safe. Well, did the State of the Union change anything for you? What did Biden's remarks suggest to you about what might happen at the federal level and what we might expect to be repercussions of that? On one hand, I acknowledge that the Biden administration has really embraced harm reduction and even says harm reduction out loud. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're the first administration to really do that and to be supportive of those efforts. So I think that's great. It's outstanding. 
you know, I give them a lot of credit for doing that and for really acknowledging that drug use is a public health issue and we need to meet people where they're at. But on the flip side of that, during the State of the Union, I heard a lot of talk about supply-side interdiction. And we know that prohibition and supply-side interdiction have done nothing to quell the supply of illicit fentanyl. If anything, those tactics have made it so that we have a dangerous illicit supply of drugs in the U.S. This is the fourth wave of the opioid overdose crisis, and it's been driven because of law enforcement tactics, criminalizing various substances, which means that people move on to another substance that they can find more easily. My fear is that if we keep focused on supply-side interdiction, we know from 50 years of failed drug war that that strategy doesn't work, that we will see new substances emerge, and that the public health issue will remain, which is why we really need to focus on a public health response. We need to make sure that people who use drugs are using drugs safely and are staying alive, and that we empower people with education around drugs. Well, are there particular policies at a state or federal level, either that are drafted and ready to be acted on, or that you think could be created tomorrow that would actually change things? Are there particular policies in the works or that we might think about? So I think the most concerning policy at the federal level, and it's concerning because usually what happens at the federal level is, you know, mimicked by localities in different states, but There has been an effort over the last few years to criminalize fentanyl-related substances and schedule them as Schedule I drugs without fully testing these substances. And that is really concerning because, one, it's a criminalization approach to this issue, which we know is really a public health problem. But it would impose new mandatory minimums on people who are caught with fentanyl-related substances. And, you know, we know that One, people who sell drugs and people who use drugs are often the same person. Like, I think, you know, lawmakers like to pretend that we're talking about two different populations, but often they're one and the same. And we know that criminalization is not going to give people the support they need to end problematic drug use. So the criminalization approach doesn't make sense for that purpose. Rather, I think Congress should embrace public health alternatives. And there are a number of bills in Congress that would support harm reduction services, health services for people who use drugs, would support things like education so that, you know, people have knowledge related to drugs. We think that those bills should be ones that lawmakers move in Congress. But unfortunately, just because (laughs) criminalizing things continues to be incredibly popular with some politicians. Mm -hmm. So it's been hard for them to drop that notion and instead really, truly embrace the science and public health. But we're trying to explain to them the potential ramifications of continuing to choose criminalization versus public health. Well, finally, I have to say I was struck by how Associated Press's piece about the State of the Union and fentanyl in particular uh, it was called uh, Biden's fentanyl position sparks criticism from two sides. Um, but it, it led with uh, harm reduction advocates who, it, as it put it, think a call for strong criminal penalties is the wrong way to go about it. It, it started with that and it actually gave voice to that perspective ahead of, at least semantically ahead of, the people who were hollering about border policies. And that was kind of after I turned off the cynic in me that was like, where was this when we were talking about crack cocaine? But still, the idea of harm reduction advocates taking the lead in a news article about 
a drug was something a little bit new for me. And I just wonder if you see anything shifting in media coverage of these issues or if there is something in particular you would like to push reporters to do when it comes to this. I think any issues actually related to drugs and and crime, I think it's really important for reporters to look at the facts and not continue to perpetuate what they think will drive clicks. I think oftentimes, unfortunately, news is driven by clicks, but when we're talking about drug use specifically, that could be really, really harmful. We don't want to push people away from seeking help if they need it, especially when we're looking at a drug supply like we have today that is incredibly dangerous. If anything, we want to encourage people to seek out health services. So just making sure that we're not using stigmatizing language, supporting criminalization publicly is really important in order to save lives. We've been speaking with Maritza Perez-Medina, Director of the Office of Federal Affairs at the Drug Policy Alliance. You can find their work online at drugpolicy.org. Maritza Perez-Medina, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much. There is so much myth and misinformation caught up in corporate media's presentation of social take two of social security and of the unending efforts to cut it, to get at it, to take that money away from working people who paid into it for reasons that amount to so much moving target, blah, 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 that it's media criticism 101 at this point to debunk those misdirected and malintentioned narratives. Yet here we are again. Just to gird us for the current fight, we will hear again from Nancy Altman, president of the group Social Security Works, board chair at the Pension Rights Center, and the author of, among other titles, The Battle for Social Security, From FDR's Vision to Bush's Gamble. We spoke with Altman in 2018 when then-Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell tipped a poorly hidden hand by saying that, were it up to him... Congress could be looking to address Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, which he called the real drivers of the debt. Corporate media at that time were quick to report Democrats' outcry, but the reporting didn't include any questioning of media's own role in laying the groundwork for those claims that Social Security is a controversial program or a troubled program or a program in urgent need of addressing. Well, let's start with what Mitch McConnell just said when the Senate Republican leader was talking to Bloomberg on October 16th. He called Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid the real drivers of the debt and lamented both parties' unwillingness to address or adjust them. Now, some people must have thought, did he accidentally say the quiet part loud and the loud part quiet? You know, Social Security is famously so popular that it's described as the third rail of U.S. politics. And here he's saying, shame if anything were to happen to it uh, right before an election. But if it was maybe brazen, McConnell's claims are, are in a long tradition, aren't they? Yes, and I think you really captured it perfectly in your introduction. This is an ideological fight. This is about values. But 
the side that is opposed to Social Security, President Dwight Eisenhower, in a private letter to his brother, described opponents of Social Security as negligible in number, a tiny splinter group. Unfortunately, that tiny splinter group now holds reign over the Republican Party, but they understand the politics well enough to not say, we think Social Security is socialism, we don't think government should be doing this. They say, oh, we love it, but it's driving the deficit. The reality is that Social Security does not add a penny to the deficit. It's totally self-financed. It is an earned benefit that we all contribute to. It's got to have a balanced budget, and it always has. And no other but conservative President Ronald Reagan, you can go on YouTube, and we've got a great clip of him saying exactly that Social Security has nothing to do with the deficit. But this is a line that Mitch McConnell is using, and I think it's he's feeling defensive because, of course, their tax cut to millionaires and billionaires and big corporations blew a hole in the federal budget, $1.5 trillion. And now they're trying to look around and explain, no, 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 it, it wasn't us that did it. And so they're going after uh, their favorite targets, which they oppose on ideological grounds. Well, and they have something to work with because media, I think, have not done a terrific job of making so concretely clear the realities of Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid, that when you hear these Republican claims, you can say, oh, wait, I know, I know that's wrong. You know, I think, in fact, media have some active untelling uh, to do, having spent decades kind of enabling this storyline. You unpack and address the storyline in your book, The Truth About Social Security. And I, I would really like to just walk through, you've started to already, but walk through some of the myths that seem just so difficult to dispel. No, you're exactly right. And let me, before we get to the myths, talk about the role of the mainstream media. Because as I mentioned, Dwight Eisenhower called the opponents a tiny splinter group, which is true, but they have oversized influence right. because they are literal billionaires. I mean, the obvious are the Koch brothers, but there's another who died recently, Pete Peterson, who spent before his death a billion dollars of his own wealth to spreading the lies about Social Security. He was dedicated to this and set up a lot of organizations. So you'll talk to various organizations, Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, and all of these sound very independent and objective, but they've all been funded by the same group and they have the same message. So the media and, I must say, mainstream politicians, too, the elites in Washington, you know, they go to the same cocktail parties. They've bought into this. Right. Fortunately, the Democratic Party has emerged and returned to its roots and seen the light. And they now are calling for expanding Social Security, while the Republicans are still saying, we've got to save Social Security. It's, you know, it's we love it, but we can't afford it and other nonsense like that, which are some of the myths where I think we'll be getting into. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I was just going back through fairs archives on this, and it's there's just no shortage. I mean, here we have NPR, Scott Simon. This is 2004. No one would deny that Social Security is headed for a major crisis. The crash, in a sense, has already begun because thanks to the baby boom, there are fewer Americans paying into the system. So that's what sets up this idea of what is ultimately, of course, a goal of privatization being packaged as rescuing a system that's in crisis. 
Exactly. It's all the same rhetoric. And this billionaire-funded campaign has been unsuccessful in actually cutting our cash benefits, but it has been successful in a couple of ways. One is that part of what Social Security is supposed to provide, in addition to wage replacement, is a sense of peace of mind, security. It's in its name. The idea that if the unimaginable happens and you become disabled and can no longer work, if you die prematurely leaving young children, or if you are fortunate and live to old age, you are secure in the knowledge that you have a benefit you've earned that will provide for you and your family. And that's something we've all contributed to and paid for. So we've lost that. And the way that we've lost it is that you ask most Americans, especially younger Americans, if they think Social Security will be there for them, and they say no. And that's just wrong. The, well, the projections by the Social Security Administration, even if Congress were to do nothing over the next 75 years, the end of the 21st century, there would still be enough revenue coming in to pay 75 cents on the dollar. Now, that's not enough. We want to have on the dollar, but the idea that the program won't be there would take an act of Congress. Well, I think it's such an important point to say that the opposite side to this uh, right-wing push to gut these programs is not, oh, please, can we please hold on to them? It's actually to expand them, uh, and that that would actually be more in keeping with the founders' vision of what Social Security was meant to do. Absolutely. The wonderful part of Social Security, there are a number of things. One is that what makes this such a good issue for those who are on the right side of it is that the winning politics is also profoundly wise policy. We, as a nation, are facing a looming retirement income crisis with the collapse of the defined benefit plan, stagnating wages, loss of home equity, and so forth. The one part of our retirement income system that continues to work extremely well is Social Security. What we need to do is build on what works, expand Social Security. And to be very clear, this myth of, oh, it's going bankrupt, it's unaffordable, the question of whether to expand or cut Social Security is a matter of values. We are the wealthiest nation in the world. We are at the wealthiest moment in our history. And this legislation that's been introduced, there are about a dozen bills that various ways of expanding Social Security and paying for it, they show unequivocally that if we want to expand benefits, we can do so responsibly. But the other side does not want to make this a question of values because the American people overwhelmingly, whether you're conservative or liberal, Republican, Democrat, all genders, all races, everyone, we all overwhelmingly agree that Social Security works. We don't want to see it cut. We'd like to see it expanded. That was Nancy Altman from Social Security Works, talking with Counterspin five years ago, but with absolute relevance for today. They're online at socialsecurityworks.org. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.